Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show who are experts in their fields. To the greatest extent possible, we stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research, on facts, and the experience and insight of our guests to help us arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrative solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and even national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Bruce Moreland, one of your hosts for this morning's show, and in the chair next to me is Nathan Leaf. Nate, what do we have in store for our listeners today? Climate change and the energy debate have taken center stage in the public policy arena in the decades since scientists began rigorous systematic assessments in the 1970s of the impact of human activities on global climate. The scientific consensus that has emerged in the decades since is that the burning of fossil fuels and resultant greenhouse gas emissions are the primary drivers of human-based global warming. And this has placed increasing emphasis and urgency on solutions involving cleaner and renewable energy sources. To help us understand the current state of this transition and the challenges facing global, national, and local policymakers in crafting meaningful solutions to the climate crisis, we welcome our guest today, Mr. Michael Noble. Mr. Noble is Executive Director of Fresh Energy, a Minnesota-based public advocacy group working to accelerate the state's transition to an equitable, carbon-neutral economy. Mr. Noble is a leader in the energy space that spans a 30-year career during which he has become well-known for shaping and driving the major public policy innovations that are speeding Minnesota and the Midwest transition from fossil fuels to clean, renewable energy. Michael was a founding board member of several Minnesota-based advocacy groups, including Wind on the Wires, which is known today as the Clean Grid Alliance, Climate Generation, the Minnesota Environmental Partnership, Conservation Minnesota, and the Conservation Minnesota Voter Center, as well as serving as a founding member of the REAMP Network, an organization dedicated to coordinating the lean energy, clean energy transition across the entire upper Midwest. Michael Noble, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Bruce and I are in the KYMN studios in the heart of beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. Where are you this morning? I'm in uh, St. Paul in my uh, my home office, and uh, I'm looking out the window at uh, uh, McAllister Groveland neighborhood. We're right in between the Grandview Theater and um, McAllister College. Beautiful, yes. Another typical spring Minnesota day here. <laughs> a little gray, a little rainy, um, but we're looking very forward to our conversation today. I want to jump right in. Um, Michael, the climate crisis and the global clean energy transition are such enormous topics and so vast in scope that it is often difficult to know where to begin the discussion. But in your organization's promotional video on the Fresh Energy website, I came across a very interesting tidbit of information that I thought might offer a good starting point and a bridge between the global and the local scopes of the issue. And that is that the upper Midwest a region encompassing 12 states, including Minnesota, is responsible for nearly one-third of total U.S. carbon emissions. And if it was its own country, the upper Midwest would rank sixth in the world, just behind Russia, in total carbon emissions. Why is that a big deal? And, and how has this driven your involvement and commitment to the transition to clean and renewable sources of energy in our region? Yeah, that uh, that map does surprise a lot of people when they see that uh, 12 states in the middle of the country and the, the northern half of the Midwest, the middle of the country, uh, that uh, if we were our own country, we would be ranked right behind uh, China and the United States and Russia. But we would be our emissions are more than Japan and Germany and Iran and Korea. So the middle of the country, the Midwest, is where fresh energy works and where where your listeners live. 
Uh, and we think it's very, very strategically important that we address uh, our emissions and advance climate solutions that bene benefit everyone. But, you know, it's actually, the story is actually worse than that because it's actually not the emissions themselves that is the key problem. It's the historic emissions over all time, literally the CO2 that is in the Earth's atmosphere. And if you rank all the countries in the world on um, cumulative emissions, all the emissions they put up there over the last 100 years, the United States is by far the biggest uh, with 20% uh, of total worldwide emissions, almost twice as much as China. And so that's why we really have to tackle the problem in the Midwest because the Midwest is the leading emitter in, in, in the U.S. and the U.S. is the leading emitter in the world if you look at it from a cumulative basis over time. So we, you know, the, 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 the other, and people say, well, why? Why is the Midwest so high in, in CO2 emissions? Well, it's just four things. It's that we have long ways to drive. We don't have the advantage of living in, you know, Boston and Washington, New York, uh, where everything is close together. We drive a long way between Minneapolis and Chicago and between uh, Fargo and Detroit and between uh, Des Moines and uh, De uh, Duluth. There's, these are long, long drives. But also our, our Midwest uh, electricity power system is very heavily dependent on coal more so than the West Coast and more so than the East Coast. So getting coal out of our electric supply has been a big, big priority for fresh energy. The third big reason the Midwest has such high emissions is that we heat our homes with natural gas. We don't actually uh, enjoy the balmy climates of uh, Southern California or you know, the maritime climates of uh, North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia and Florida. We're a cold weather state and we have to heat uh, you know, sometimes from October till May, and other states don't have that burden, and um, almost all the heating is with fossil fuels. And lastly, you know, we're the world's, uh, one of the world's most productive and most uh, prosperous agricultural economies worldwide, but uh, comes with that associated emissions. It's not primarily emissions related to, you know, uh, diesel driving tractors or, or you know, trucks on the farm you know it's it's inputs into agriculture especially for example the natural gas that's consumed as we manufacture fertilizers that is a big source of agricultural emissions and fresh energy has got a great new program that we're just launching now we're going to show the world here in minnesota how we're going to make fertilizer not from natural gas at all but we're going to make it from hydrogen and electrolysis and wind power and eliminate the emissions for producing fertilizer. Wow, that's that's going to be very important in in this area since we're a lot of farmers surround Northfield. Uh, we're a very rural area, except for the little blue dot of the city here. <laughs> and the farmers, of course, are are more aware of how climate is changing than we uh, sometimes think because they're the ones that are at the you know bleeding edge. They're the ones that are seeing their their in-field days changing and how much time they get, their yields change, and it's surprising. People are sometimes surprised to hear that you don't necessarily get more yield if you have more CO2 uh, or if you have more warm days because you also have to co have uh, Corn is a fascinating crop, but anyway, that's getting off topic here. Um, so it's a, it's a big deal that we've got, and, and we I think it's important for everybody to remember that we have um, – we're providing food to a lot of the world. So it's not like we're building all this, you know, consuming all this locally. So before we delve into the details, I want to get back onto uh, fresh energy. Can you briefly summarize kind of the history of energy production and carbon emissions in Minnesota and in the upper Midwest and maybe give us a little bit more background on the origins of the clean energy movement in this region? Because you've been in there from day one. Yeah, sure. Um you know, our, 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 our fossil fuel dependency, uh, it's really the central nervous system of our economy is the burning of fossil fuels. That's been true for 100 years. You know, it's primarily uh, coal and gas in the electric generation sector. It's primarily oil in the transportation economy, whether it's, you know, airplanes or trains or trucking or, or driving. It's, it's primarily oil, and it's primarily natural gas in um, 
uh, keeping buildings warm and, uh, you know, empowering industry and industrial process. So coal and oil and gas, those are all, you know, fossil fuels. And again, in a, in a tip of my hat to the fossil fuel industry, it's provided the uh, prosperity uh, in the economy uh, for 100 years and the way of life. And, you know, this this phrase is almost 20 years old. No no big deal here. We just have to do a transplant on the central nervous system, our economy, without hurting the patient. No big deal. Uh, the fact that it's never been done before is like, okay, well, that's a problem. But that's what we're all about is, uh, is uh, replacing oil and coal and gas with substitutes that are um, going to continue our prosperity and eliminate, uh, uh, you know, uh, all the risks associated with fossil fuels. So, uh, you know, fresh energy has been around since 1990, so we're, we're over 30 years old now. I was a volunteer at Fresh Energy for the first five years. I was a, a volunteer board member and a volunteer organizer, and then I became its second executive director uh, in the fall of 95. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm retiring. I actually say I'm rewiring. I'm not retiring at all, but I'm rewire. After 30 years of trying to rewire Minnesota, now I have to rewire my own life. Uh, so I'm, I'm getting ready for my next chapter uh, less than a month from now. Uh, uh, later in the show, uh, you can ask me about our new executive director who was announced this week. I'm very excited about that. Uh, but, you know, that's been our whole story um, for 30 years is how do we how do we sustain the prosperity, expand the prosperity, um, have 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 a more of a shared prosperity, inclusive prosperity while we substitute for oil and coal and gas uh, solutions that are better and um, um, in many cases cheaper that um, are locally produced, not imported from you know, Russia or Saudi Arabia or Iran or nothing wrong with our friends in Louisiana, but why do we have to pay them for energy if we can make energy here? Um, that's been our whole story is a, is a shared prosperity while we replace fossil fuels. That's that's the whole story of fresh energy. And we mostly have focused on public policy. So if someone comes to us and say, hey, do you wanna help build a demonstration project where manure can be used to generate electricity in Mankato? We'd be like, no, we'll work on the public policy. That's that's for private sector. We don't do uh, demonstration projects. We don't do, you know, direct capital investment. We don't, we don't you know, come out and weatherize homes or build wind farms. We, we do the, what I like to call the rules of the game. Uh, how, how do we set public policy that helps uh, jumpstart these industries that solve climate? Okay. okay. I want to zoom out to the big picture and briefly talk about targets and terms. We hear about 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees Celsius of warming from pre-industrial global averages as important targets. And we often hear people using the terms green energy, clean energy, and renewable energy almost interchangeably as pathways to try and meet these targets. But in fact, there are several subtle differences between these terms. Could you enlighten us a bit on, on these differences and why they're important to the policymaking process as we try to slow and, and hopefully halt global warming to these various targets and, and maybe talk a little bit about the recent IPCC report? Okay, there's a lot in that, and uh, I think I'm going to break it into two answers. Uh, the first thing about, uh, you know, the warming of the world, uh, uh, two degrees, uh, or the warming of the world, 1.5 degrees. You know, the scientists have been studying this and publishing their views uh, every, you know, five or six years. All the scientists in the world who talk about this, think about this, write about this. You know, they compete, they criticize each other's work, they attack each other's work, they... You know, just like any competitive field, you know, scientists are not like a team, they're competitors, but they, they, they get together every five or six years and tell the world what we actually understand. And uh, when they write their consensus views, they write their views that they've all agreed upon, then 192 nations of the world, literally, the governments in 192 nations, they sign off on those statements word for word. So when you hear that the IPCC is some United Nations liberal thing, you know, what the what the United Nations is publishing has been agreed to by the Russians and the Saudi Arabians and the Chinese and the Norwegians and the, the 
you know, 192 nations have signed off on the document word for word. So it tends to be actually a very conservative document, not a liberal document. It tends to be very, very, very cautious. And the scientist is always a little bit ahead of what they're willing to say is a consensus. But the consensus is what everybody agrees on. And I like to say all serious people who are well-informed. And there's a lot of people who aren't serious. And there's some people who aren't well-informed. But if you're serious and well-informed, you don't you just have to track what what people are agreeing upon and publishing as the agreed views is that almost all the warming that we're experiencing is human caused perhaps all of it or almost all of it is human caused it's primarily caused by the burning of fossil fuels although there are other contributions as well the main contribution is the burning of fossil fuels and the production of carbon dioxide to the earth's atmosphere and the world is warming up because of it. It has warmed up, and it will warm up more. And the warming is in the pipeline. There's kind of a delayed response, like the emissions we're producing today, the warming is going to show up later. So, like, you can't stop that. That's already, like, a done deal. That's, like, in the pipeline, a done deal. And so you asked about 1.5 degrees warming versus 2 degrees warming. When I first started reading all, all this stuff, you know, back in 1990, you know, people were saying, you know, will the war world warm up eight degrees or will it warm up six degrees or will it warm up five degrees or will it warm up three degrees? And I just want to say the most incredibly fabulous, wonderful news is the answer to those questions are no. The world is not going to warm up eight, six, five, four degrees. And the reason is because so much cool stuff is happening to replace fossil fuels and it's happening so fast. So now what we're debating is whether the world warm up one and a half degrees or two and a half degrees. And God help us, I hope it's not three. So we've really done a fabulous job of, of, of basically eliminating the worst case scenarios. But one and a half degrees and two degrees aren't good either. <laughs> They're bad. <laughs> and three degrees is terrible. So one and a half degrees is pretty bad. Two degrees is more bad and three degrees is really bad but we're not going to catastrophic hellscape you know seven degrees that's not going to happen the reason catastrophic hellscape seven degrees is not going to happen is because the world is not going to build a thousand more coal fire power plants that's just never ever going to happen and in 1990 1995 who knew maybe that would happen and now everybody agrees that's never going to happen so that's completely off the table but the tricky problem is, is that when, when, when the United Nations compared, what does a world look like that warms up two degrees? And what does a world that look like that only warms up 1.5 degrees? Everybody's jaw dropped. They were like, oh my God, 1.5 degrees would be so much better. Ah, but getting there is so much harder because we have to cut emissions so fast it's almost beyond our capability of cutting emissions that fast. So now that is the international debate is how fast can we go? And to get to one and a half degrees, if we were really going to keep the world warming no more than one and a half degrees, which is the right thing. And what people said, you know, I hope we can do that. Here's what we would have to do. All the nations would have to cut their emissions about half by the end of this decade and all the emission of the world would have to get to about zero by 2050. That sounds pretty hard, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's yeah. because we've already, we're already at 1.2. Is that correct? Yep. Of warming from yep. pre-industrial yeah. levels. So we're exactly already really right. bordering it, up close. In fact, what's baked We're really in, pushing our, we're just pushing right, right up. Right some, up against the edge of what is humanly possible right now. <laughs> some scientists have said that what we've already admitted, omitted, and uh, or emitted, and what is coming, um, even with the most aggressive uh, reduction plans, still get us to 1.8. So it's a question uh, that, of whether I, And I'm admitting all of that. Uh, you know, I try to keep my game face on that 1.5 is still possible. Right. Hey, secret. I, I, I don't know if it really is. Like... <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, well, that's my game face. Like, come on, everybody, let's pitch in. And they're like, yeah. like I don't know if that's yeah. going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, I have to comment on one point you made about the scientists are a competitive industry, not a collab. Yeah. collab. I was a, I was a, a statistician on clinical trials, and I have to say, when you find something unusual and you can prove it, you get to be the hero. So if, right. there, if there was proof out there that had any, you know, so when they say they agree on something, that's a big deal. That's it's not- a big deal. You're right. I'm glad you're a scientist because somehow science has gotten to be the bad guy here and people start to attack scientists, which really kind of makes me, me nervous when people are saying, like, you know, the, the criticisms are, A, they get government grants. Okay, well, the government is interested in research and science, so it does provide grants. But then the, the implication is that they're saying what the government wants to hear. Well, nothing could be further from the truth, because scientists are incredibly intensely competitive. And I want my 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 analysis from Princeton to have everybody say, oh, my God, Princeton is brilliant. Did you see how they blew away the analysis at Yale? That's how they think. <laughs> like, they are fiercely competitive. So the fact that they're like, okay, we're all in agreement on these 10 things, it, it's like it's like all the baseball teams, you know, agreeing on, like, okay, the Yankees, they are the best again, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's well, not very common where everybody comes and they say, oh, yeah, we all agree. We all agree. That's right. Very true. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the history of your organization, Fresh Energy, where you mm-hmm. currently serve as executive director. And uh, yeah. going back to the science thing, I was first involved with climate models in the 80s when they were being used to discuss a thing called nuclear winter. And I've talked about yep. that on the air here a few times. So by the 1990, um, yep. and since your formation then, we, we know we've seen a lot of change. How has the climate and energy discussion changed and how have those changes impacted fresh energies, policymaking, and education efforts in the state? Okay, so when we were formed, we were formed in the fall of 1990. And we were formed by a group of, uh, uh, let's see, we had some, some academics, and we had some activists, and we had some nonprofit leaders, and we had some employees of uh, uh, the state and agencies and what we all had in common was, geez, we don't really have an energy policy in this country. Geez, we don't really have an energy policy in the state either. You know, maybe if we had an energy policy, we wouldn't have so much, you know, you know, problems. Uh, I mean, look at the problems related to energy. First of all, there's the, the volatility of the cost of fossil fuels, you know, that gas can be $2 and then all of a sudden it's $4. Like, that's not good for the economy. And then what about the our, 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 our foreign policy? You know, in 1990, would we really have gone to uh, liberate Kuwait if Iran, if their major export had been bananas? Would we really have gone there? Would, mm-hmm. would we have would we have had our foreign policy in the Middle East what it is if there w- the world wasn't dependent on on keeping the Straits of Hormuz open for oil shipping? So it affects our economy. It affects our foreign policy. But, you know, it, it also affects uh, economic opportunity, you know, that look at the western North Dakota is so incredibly prosperous because of the shale oil boom. You know, there's economic opportunity, but then there's economic risks when the coal plants close in the Ohio River Valley. Uh, you know, everybody's out of work. So there's 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 economy, there's uh international relations and national security there's uh prosperity and the future of uh uh, jobs and who has wealth and who doesn't but one of the things that of course brought us all together was the environment and um i from the very very beginning thought the climate was uh, humankind's most um pressing existential issue i i believe that in my bones for uh, over 30 years uh and that was my motivation for getting involved is you know, tapping together and knitting together. People were concerned about the the economy. People were concerned about national security. People were concerned about the environment. And starting to form a consensus view of what would a sensible energy policy look like for Minnesota, for the Midwest, for our neighboring states, and for the United States of America. So uh, early, early work, just so you can kind of picture it, the early, early work back in the early 90s 
we tried to get our electric utilities in Minnesota to do a better job saving energy. That was our very first issue. Uh, we say, hey, electric utilities, you're selling electricity, you're selling electricity, you're selling electricity. How about if you help people save electricity, do a better job of uh, you know energy efficient lighting, you know energy efficient heating, energy efficient buildings, uh, you know energy efficient you know insulation. Uh, how about it? Utilities take on that job, and that was the very first law that we passed: is that that utilities have to be responsible for generating energy, but they also should be responsible for using energy sensibly and wisely. And if you integrate those two things together you're going to have a better economy and you're going to have a better utility. That was our first big victory. And then our second big victory uh, in 1994, I won't tell the whole story, it's a long story, but our second big victory was we brought modern wind power to the, to America. Now that sounds like a very bold thing to say for a scrappy little nonprofit that hasn't hired its first employee yet, but it's actually <laughs> a true statement. The very first wind farm that was built in the world between California and Denmark was built on the western, southwest corner of the state of Minnesota, on Minnesota's Buffalo Ridge. And it was built there because of advocacy of fresh energy at the Minnesota legislature and with XL Energy in 1994. The very, very first wind farm in North America, the modern commercial wind farm in North America, was built in Minnesota because of work we, we did. The, our coalition, a ragtag coalition of activists and academics and nonprofit leaders and, you know, uh, employees of, of agencies kind of pulling on the oars together. We caused that $100 million wind farm to be built out in western Minnesota. And now wind, wind, farm in the middle, wind farms in the middle of America is probably, I should actually know this, but I, I bet it's a $100 billion industry now. I, you know, I, I remember confidently when it was a $50 billion industry, so I should say it's a 50 to $100 billion industry because I don't actually know anymore. I used to keep track of it, and now I don't, I don't pay attention. But I remember where the first $100 million was put in, into wind farms in 1997. And the cool thing about wind energy is today, wind energy in the Great Plains and the Northern Plains is the cheapest way to make electricity on planet Earth. Yeah. Wind farms yeah. in the plains is the cheapest way to make electricity on planet Earth to build a new a new thing. Yeah. You know, it right. has to compete with things things that have already paid off the the mortgage right. and and maybe that would be cheaper if for example if you had you know completely totally amortized uh, your coal plant and you just had to shovel coal in it. But now wind farms are beating that. So a brand new wind farm and a brand new solar farm that have to pay off the whole mortgage over the next 25 years, today they can make electricity cheaper than a coal plant that has no mortgage and all it has to pay is, is digging up the coal, shipping the coal by rail, and shoveling the coal into the, into the boiler if the coal plant is completely paid for. So that's why no new coal plants can be built because it's cheaper to make wind and solar than just to shovel coal. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that, that unbelievable? That is a spectacularly interesting fact that I'm going to carry that, with it, me. <laughs> you don't ever forget that. And, see, and you can say it with confidence because I know what I'm talking about. It is cheaper to build a brand new solar farm and cheaper to build a brand new wind farm than to, to, than to unload coal off a coal train and dump it into a boiler in a coal plant that's completely paid off. Wow. But if you wanted to build a new coal plant, you have to put up a billion dollars. Yeah. But I'm talking about a coal plant that doesn't have, the debt is all gone. The yeah. billion dollars is all paid. They're still tearing down those coal plants today. They're not tearing down those coal plants because rabble rousers like me are pushing on them. They're tearing down those coal plants because they make no economic sense. Spectacular. Did you know that? They're tearing down coal plants all across America. More than half the coal plants in America have uh, agreed upon dates when they're closed their doors, shut the doors, and you know take them down. More than half the coal plants have already agreed to do that, and it's been primarily driven by economics. 
Wow. Well, and I don't know uh, how many wind turbines were involved in that original Buffalo Ridge project, but I, the latest numbers I have seen is that there are now 70,000 uh, wind turbines operating in North America that are capable of powering 39 million homes. So that's Well, I'm amazing... glad you have that statistic. Just, uh, you know, everybody's seen a wind turbine. Uh, now I think everybody lives in, actually, there's two on Carleton College campus and one right. on St. Olaf campus. Uh, you've yeah. lived with wind turbines just fine. Those two wind turbines at Carleton and the wind turbine over at St. Olaf, uh, those are about two and a half megawatts. I think maybe one and a half or two and a half megawatts. You know, they're about $2 million each. Uh, and, you know, they, you know, they have a, no, they're getting both of those turbines are probably more than ten years old, right? Don't you think mm-hmm. they're both? They're all three of those turbines are more than ten years old, maybe twelve years so. old. Right. So they're getting very, very close to the point where they have their mortgage paid off. So what do you think is the cost of energy? <laughs> huh. If the wind turbine has no mortgage, right? Zero. Yeah. Yeah. It's the cost of tightening the bolts and putting a little oil in once in a while. Right. And you know repairs and maybe maybe the maybe something needs to be replaced every few years, but the price of electricity is zero. Right. So if the turbine mortgage is paid off, if the wind farm mortgage is paid off, the price of electricity is zero. So we're coming into an era in the world. Imagine this era we're coming into, where there are going to be vast capital investments in wind and solar that are all paid off. And the world is going to be awash in free electricity. What are the industries that are going to chase electricity where the marginal cost is zero? Huh. Right. A lot of new industries are going to be built around that. That's why people are talking about hydrogen. You know, hydrogen is expensive to make. The way you make hydrogen is you, you split water uh, into uh, uh, oxygen and, and hydrogen you use a, a machine called an elect- electrolyzer, electrolysis, and you get hydrogen and oxygen. Well, it's, you know, electrolysis is expensive, electrolyzer is expensive, but what if the electricity is, you know, under one penny, you know, half a penny, you know, go to long-term contract for electricity at one penny. So everybody's going to be chasing this cheap electricity for industries of the future. Well, before we get into more of the details of the costs and the and the various technologies coming up, let's talk about this this watershed moment. I, I call it watershed um, in Minnesota, which was the 2007 bill, the Next Generation Energy Act, as, as I think that was a very significant piece of legislation here for this revolution you're talking about. At the time, this bill put Minnesota second behind only California as the state with the most aggressive greenhouse gas emission reduction targets. Can you tell us about the scope of that particular piece of legislation? What were the targets and how did the plan to meet those targets evolve? I actually love talking about that because that was one of the most exciting years of my career. You know, and you guys said no politics, but I'll just tell you that the greatest thing about that bill is that both political parties voted for it enthusiastically. Uh, I think there were 201 members of the Minnesota legislature, you know, both political parties. And the governor was a Republican, Governor Tim Pawlenty, and the legislative leaders were Democrats. But all the Republicans and Democrats rolled up their sleeves and pitched in. I think out of the 201 legislators, and not somebody's going to look this up because now I'm saying it public on the radio, I believe 193 legislators voted for it and like 13 voted no or something like that. Maybe that doesn't quite add up, but it wasn't very, it it was almost, it was virtually unanimous. It was like, it was more than 90% of the Democrats and more than 90% of the Republicans voted for the bill. And it was signed into law by a conservative uh, Republican, um, Governor Governor Pawlenty. And I was advising um, the legislators working in the bill, but I was friends and acquaintance with the uh, um, uh, advisors and, and allies and people working inside the governor's office. And Governor Pawlenty, he was the greenest guy in the room when they were debating what could they support. Could they do this? Could they do that? And he relished the idea that he was leading an America on climate, that he was the greenest governor in both political parties at that year, the governor plenty was the greenest governor in both political parties. So the reason why I tell that story is because it didn't used to be partisan and it doesn't have to be partisan. It, it, the only reason it got partisan and it is partisan now, climate and energy are, are two of the most partisan issues in American politics. The reason it got partisan is not because it, it's naturally logically partisan. 
The reason it got partisan is because the oil industry spent a lot, lot, lot of money to make it partisan. They, they, you know, you're talking to a, you know, a think tank, if you will, or a nonprofit group in Minnesota. There are, are 20 nonprofit groups that all they do is try to make fossil fuels and clean energy opposites and partisan. That's all they do is work on making it partisan and, and making the public confused about whether global warming is real or not. Can you imagine a nonprofit? They get out of bed every day and all they do is throw sand in the gears of public understanding of what's going on in the world. That's all they do is try to confuse people as, oh, it's not really real. Um, you know, maybe the liberals made it up, whatever. So that's all I'm going to say about politics is it doesn't have to be partisan. It didn't used to be partisan. Governor Polenny was a great climate hero, as was, uh, you know, Governor Huckabee and Governor Schwarzenegger uh, and, you know, Senator uh, McCain, may he rest in peace, were all great climate heroes, but the oil industry figured out how to make it partisan. That's that's what I'm going to say about politics. I, I'm going to follow up with that a little bit. I, I'm an activist with Citizens Climate Lobby, and we understand very well how the politics has been driven by a very small group of very energized uh, spokespeople that are willing to distort things if necessary. I mean, and you know, it was nonpartisan to where we used to have images of our leaders sitting on a couch talking to us about mm-hmm. climate change, and now, now it's political. And you're right, we try and stay away from the politics, but that was a good history. I like mm-hmm. that. Thank you very much. Um, so, did I answer the second part of your question? I think I oh, asked, yeah. answered the first part. Uh, uh, you asked about the Next Generation Energy Act. Oh, but you also asked about the the targets, the the greenhouse gas reduction targets in state law, and mm-hmm. how we are how are we doing meeting them? Uh, so that was one of the victories in the the the, the five big victories in the in the 2007 law was re- required all the electric utilities to get 25% renewable energy by 2025, 25 by 25. We qu- required everybody to do that. Everybody voted for that. We required the electric utilities to double their um, efforts and their commitment to saving energy. Remember, that was, I said, the first thing we did back in 1990. Then we improved upon it in 2007. We essentially, uh, I don't want to say use the word ban, but essentially made it impossible to build a new coal fire power plant in Minnesota, made it economically impossible. Uh, And then we set in law uh, greenhouse gas reduction goals that Minnesota would reduce our emissions by, I think it was 15% by 2015, 30% by 2025, and 80% by 2050. Uh, that was best, the best science that we had back then. The, the science is better now. We have to reduce emissions further by, by 2050 now. But we got those into state law. That's you know It's the goal of the state of Minnesota that we shall try. But goals and we shall try is not the same as we're going to do this thing for real. And so we missed the goal in 2015. And, um, you know, the trick is, is that we're really doing a really, really, really good job on getting our emissions down in our electric power sector. And we're doing a really, really, really bad job on getting our emissions down in transportation, you know, trucking and driving and cars. We're doing a really, really, really bad job getting emissions down in heavy industry, you know, manufacturing and mining and, uh, you know, uh, production of goods and services by heavy industry. And we're doing a terrible job in getting emissions down in buildings. But we're not doing such a fabulous job, (laughs) like fabulous job, getting emissions down in how we make electric power that now everybody realizes, oh, I get it. We're going to get all the carbon emissions out of our electric supply, and then we're going to electrify everything that we can. So those are the two big ideas that that make up fresh energy. Get all the emissions out of the electric supply, and as we do that, we're going to electrify everything we can. We're going to electrify heating water. We're going to electrify driving cars. We're going to electrify heating homes. We're going to electrify everything we can because the electricity is going to be carbon-free. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. 
I'm Nathan Leaf, and my co-host, Bruce Moreland, and I are talking with Michael Noble, Executive Director of Fresh Energy, about clean and renewable energy. You, you covered really nicely the, the cost of energy when you've paid off the infrastructure and the building, and that's really cool information. Costs have always been at the heart of the energy debate, and for a long time it was the cost of developing and implementing clean energy that hindered progress toward meeting emissions targets, right? It's no longer the case. Uh, we found that more than 6% of the new renewable energy projects that came online worldwide were in 2020 were cheaper than the cheapest new fossil fuel projects. That's what you talked about when you said that just shoveling coal into an existing plant is more expensive than building new. Um, are these falling? I, I think the, those have to be the game changer that appears to uh, help us get to a carbon neutral economy. Is that what you're thinking on that? Yeah. So here, here's, I, I say we're at an inflection point uh, in 2022 and 2023, uh, and everything going forward is now different than everything in the past. In the past, we had to persuade industry to kind of get their toe in the water, you know, try it out, come on, it'll be fine. But maybe we were trying to persuade them to do something that cost a little bit more, okay. which is hard mm-hmm. because even though they're, you know, you know, some of these are regulated industries. They're regulated by the government. The electric utilities are, and other utilities are cooperative utilities. They're they're basically shared ownership by the neighbors and the friends and people who buy their power. Nobody likes to agree to do something that might cost a little more. So that's what we've been doing historically is trying to persuade people to try something that might cost a little more. But going forward, we're trying to p- persuade them to do something that costs less. And this this the economic momentum of, of of wind and solar and batteries and electric cars all these things are falling 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 in costs year after year after year they get cheaper admittedly during the pandemic and the supply chain problems you know there was a little curve up in price but if you look at the historic trends they just keep falling in price um last summer when the united states congress passed uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, and especially the climate and energy pr- pr- provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. The key thing in that bill, and I, I, I say it as simply as anybody, is that the government is providing uh, tax credits for all of the all of the uh, all of the clean energy solutions that we're going to need. All the climate solutions we need are now thirty percent off on sale for the next ten years. So if everything was already cheaper and getting cheaper and like the crossover point was coming where clean was getting to the point where it was just barely cheaper than dirty and then the government puts everything on sale 30% off for 10 years. Whoa. Yeah. Now we're on now we're on a rocket ship. So that's why I say it's really taking off that we're at an inflection point because the Inflation Reduction Act put everything on sale 30% off for 10 years. And when I say everything Everything. Electric cars, electric heat pump water heaters, electric heat pumps to heat your home, new nuclear power plants, new wind farms, new solar farms, hydrogen production, carbon capture and sequestration in a natural gas plant. Everything, everything that we might need to solve climate is 30% off for the next 10 years. Boy, that has to be helping the the slide rule guys and the accountants do, yeah. do the math. There's a lot a lot of money going to be made here. A lot of that's why uh, we're now kind of shifting our attention to this kind of shared prosperity argument. Like, let's bring everybody along with this. Mm-hmm. Let's bring along uh, farmers. Let's bring along you know people who live in these towns where the coal plant is closing. You know, let's bring along you know the the black and brown communities that maybe didn't get as good a shot at the American dream. Let's bring everybody along uh, mm-hmm. with this uh, a clean energy uh, transformation that's underway. I think that answers my next question, but maybe you can add a little more color because uh, in the context of Game Changers, one of the world's oil majors, Shell, recently published their updated energy security scenarios in which the company discusses a pathway to that 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming target we talked about. 
Um, their previous pathways included increasing consumption of fossil fuels well into the 2030s. Uh, before flattening out and beginning to decline. But with this latest scenario, Shell appears to acknowledge that fossil fuel use must peak in the next few years and begin a much more precipitous decline in 2030. So that shift in outlook from an oil major suggests the game is in fact changing. And does this boost your optimism for your organization's efforts to, to facilitate the clean energy transition here in Minnesota? Yeah, again, going back to the passage of the federal law, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, that I think was signed into law by President Biden on uh, uh, August uh, of 2022, and having everything be on sale for the next 10 years, 30% off for 10 years, that just changes all the calculus, all the economics, all the strategy. And essentially, these industries that were steadily growing are now going to grow incredibly fast. And where if you had asked me if we did this interview on um april 28 2022 i said oh my god there's no way there's no possible way that america can do its part you know by cutting its emissions in half by 2030 or, or getting them down to zero by 2050 but this inflation reduction act there were three separate independent analyses and i mentioned princeton earlier but princeton and berkeley and a private uh, a private company did three separate analyses of what is actually the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act and, and the climate provisions. And they say that it gets us approximately 80% of the way to cutting emissions in half. It doesn't get us all the way to cutting emissions in half. It gets us 80% of the way. And you know what the other 20% of the way is? You know what we're going to do for the other 20% is more public policy from the states, more voluntary action from the corporations, more innovation in local communities like Northfield or uh, Fergus Falls or Red Wing, where communities take action. But you're going to ask me in a few minutes, I think, about uh, the Minnesota State Legislature uh, acting this session on Governor Wall's initiative uh, to get carbon-free electricity everywhere in Minnesota by 2040. So we're doing our fair share, um, closing that gap between getting 80% of the way there and getting all the way there. You want me to... I was just going to say, but um, I think Bruce is going to ask you about that. But uh -huh. before we do, um, and we talked about the changing landscape, it's it's not all rosy, though, right? Because I think we need to acknowledge that so far, nearly every region of the world has failed to meet its emissions targets by a significant margin. And and the updated science informs us that we need even more stringent and restrictive targets than the ones we are currently failing to meet. Are there technologies on the near-term horizon and, and talking about battery technologies or the recent leap forward in nuclear fusion that can move us off of what seems to be this slow-moving energy treadmill with limited progress thus far that just goes beyond the simple cost equation you've, you've discussed? Okay, let's talk about batteries. Remember how I told you that we're doing a fabulous job getting the carbon out of our electric supply, not just in Minnesota, but in the country. We're just doing a fabulous job, and we're doing a horrible job uh, getting the carbon out of our transportation system. Since the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act signed into law on August 22, in the following three months, there were $35 billion announced in new capital investments in new factories in the processing of materials for batteries, in the building of batteries, and in the manufacture of electric cars. That was from September 1 to the December 31st. And then from January 1 to today, there's been another $35 billion. So we're up to about 65 or $70 billion in new factories. And mostly, unfortunately, they're not coming to Minnesota, but mostly they're in a, in a swath in the middle of the country from the middle of Michigan to the middle of Georgia, just like through t Kentucky and Tennessee and Georgia and Michigan. You know how long it normally takes to have a billion dollar announced in a new factory in America? One billion dollars? I mean, that might happen every two or three years. Mm -hmm. But I'm telling you, $70 billion in new factories have been announced since the passage of this law. Half of them last year, half of them this year. So America is really serious, not just about solving global warming which maybe doesn't appeal to everybody it's not everybody's cup of tea but how about a new manufacturing economy that lifts lifts up the communities that got left behind you know that where where where, where industry moved to the sunbelt and 
Ohio and Michigan and Kentucky got left behind and the factories closed. You know, these capital investments, these private sector capital investments are realizing, oh, my God, the end of the internal combustion engine is on the horizon and we're going to be winners. You know, people like to talk about Elon Musk. Some people love him. Some people despise him. I'm not going to say anything about him either way. But he did decide that he was going to transform the auto industry worldwide and show that a car that runs on wind power and solar power is just simply a better automobile. And now every manufacturer of automobiles in the world knows that he's right. And every manufacturer of automobiles in the world is trying to figure out where are they going to fit in the great transformation from the internal combustion engine to the electric motor. So why are electric motors and electric cars, why are they economically inevitable? Let me just put it in miles per gallon. The average internal combustion engine car in America, and remember about half Americans drive uh, trucks, either SUVs or pickup trucks, but the combination of cars and trucks is about 25 or 27 miles per gallon. There's now over 40 cars you can buy that they don't take any gallons at all, but if you converted their electricity use to gallons, they get between 100 and 135 miles per gallon. But you know, if you plug that car in, into the wind turbine over at Carleton College at night, you remember where, you know where I'm going with this? So you get, say you get an off-peak rate from Dakota Electric. Many of your listeners maybe get their electricity from Dakota Electric, possibly. If you get an off-peak nighttime rate from Dakota Electric, is like buying gasoline for 40 cents a gallon. So if you get a if you can put 40 cents of electricity into your car and drive it 130 miles, that's a heck of a lot more attractive than spending 3 or 4 dollars and driving 25 miles. You see my point? Mm-hmm. So there's no future for the internal combustion engine because electric motors are so incredibly efficient. And I already told you the price of electricity is going to be falling and falling and falling, especially from new wind and solar. So new wind and solar powering new cars is just going to be an incredible way for Americans to save money eliminating their gasoline bill. So, I'm sorry, I've lost my place here. I have a question for you about the about what governor you mentioned the states have to be in the, in the game, right? Uh, yep. Gover- governor Waltz proposed an ambitious climate action plan last fall that he called the Climate Action Framework. In the lead up to the election, just two months ago, he signed Senate File Four, which establishes a quote carbon-free electricity standard for Minnesota by 2040. Is that a really significant piece of le- legislation in the overall? scheme of things for the uh, in in the state's climate action framework and can you touch a little bit on the difference in language between carbon free and carbon neutral i know that in northfield we had a big fight about those two words did you okay so here's a here's a story on that um the governor walls a carbon free electricity standard by 2040 that was fresh energy's top public policy priority in 2019 2020 2021 2022 and now victory here uh, in February 2023. The fact that it was signed into law, uh, you know, in the first couple days of February, just shows that. I mean, the legislature had only been in, in, in you know, at, in St. Paul for three weeks, and it just shows that there was a lot of pent up demand. There was a lot of frustration that that had been debated and debated and debated and debated and had never never gotten a hearing in the Minnesota Senate under the previous uh, Senate leadership. It never got heard in the Senate, but it already passed the House twice. So it was all teed up for action. And um, the way it works is the utilities are told, uh, you know, you, you have to get to 60, 80 percent carbon free. The co-ops have to get to 60 and the investor owned utilities have to get to 80 percent carbon free electricity by 2030. And everybody has to get it all out, get all the carbon out of the electric supply by 2040. But the economic modeling says it's not going to cost more. And the economic modeling says it doesn't um, risk any reliability. Uh, You know, that is the most important thing is that our electric supply is affordable and reliable. That's absolutely incredibly important to everybody who buys electricity. You don't want 
the lights flickering or going out and you don't want to pay pay too much for electricity but the because the the cost of these technologies is falling and falling and falling and falling the in the end the electric utilities did not oppose the bill you know some of them didn't stand up and cheer like hey this is so awesome but they all the electric utilities were either supportive or they were neutral uh, with maybe the exception of the municipal utilities were uh, remained opposed at the end but the Excel Energy and Minnesota Power and Ottertail Power and the rural electric co-ops, they were all either supporting the bill or, or neutral on the bill. And no electric utility would stay neutral if they thought it would drive up the cost of electricity or risk the reliability of the electric grid. So w- why do we use the phrase carbon-free? We use say carbon-free because we mean everything counts. Everything is carbon-free. Everything counts. If you got no carbon in your electricity, you count. So that that includes nuclear power. And some some people in my generation don't like nuclear power or were opposed to it growing up. Young people aren't worried about that. Young people are worried about climate change. Young people are worried about the future that their world is inheriting, that, that, that we're leaving to our children. So we allow you know large hydro to count. We allow nuclear power to count you know, wind and solar and batteries and, you know, new transmission line connecting it together and, you know, putting a chip in your water heater that uh, your electric water heater that talks to the power company to heat the water when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining to make the system work better. All the technologies are going to work together and we're going to be able to do it affordably and economically between um, now and 2040. You know, let me highlight a company called Minnesota Power. Your, your your customers maybe don't care. Your customers, your listeners maybe don't care about Minnesota Power, but they're a very very important part of Minnesota's economy. They're headquartered in Duluth, and their 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 eight largest customers are the are 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 huge industries that run twenty four seven, and they 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 dig iron ore out of the earth and they make you know trees into paper. And these huge customers, they compete internationally. They compete with companies in Finland and Brazil. They're incredibly, incredibly price sensitive. Now, Minnesota Power, when we started advocating for better electricity back in the, you know, in the early day, Minnesota Power was 95% coal-fired power plant all the way up until about 2005 or 2007, I believe. And today, uh, they are promising to be 80% wind and solar and hydro and batteries by 2030. They are committed to be 80% wind and solar and batteries. And they can't have any change in their reliability. They ne- their reliability needs to be 99.99999 because if the power goes out in the middle of taking iron ore out of there, someone's going to die. So there can't be any compromise in reliability and there can't be any compromise in competitive cost or these jobs are going to flee. And Minnesota Power uh, came to quickly came to being neutral on the bill, as did the rural electric co-ops who provide the electricity for all of our agricultural uh, parts of the state, as did XL Energy, who um, you know provides electricity in, 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 in about half of the people in Minnesota get their electricity from XL Energy. So I just want to say that the presidents of Minnesota Power and uh, Great River Energy and uh, XL Energy. We're all American heroes to um, come to the table and help make the 100% clean electricity standard better by suggesting improvements and adjustments and amendments that made the bill better, and then it became law. Very briefly, I wanted to talk to you about uh, equity. Um, the climate change conversation often centered is, centers on equity and the fact that regions and populations around the world are affected to different degrees and across different timescales. How does this translate to the regional and state level? And what is your organization doing to ensure that equity is a central consideration of the clean energy transition in Minnesota? Well, I'm glad you you asked that question. We have a deep, deep commitment to, and the way, again, I phrase it is, can we please bring everybody along? You know, can everybody uh, prosper and benefit from this incredible economic transformation. We, we can't do this thing if it makes the haves have more and the have-nots have less. You know, this isn't going to be, well, it's not going to be fair and it's not going to be politically sustainable. It'll just, there'll be a huge backlash. So we got to bring everybody along. And one, one of the things I think about a lot is, 
you know, Cohasset, Minnesota, up on the Iron Range is a small town outside of Grand Rapids. Their most important taxpayer is the Boswell Coal Fire Power Plant. Uh, what's going to happen to the tax base in that community when Boswell Plant closed down? And those are the highest paid jobs in the community, you know, 60, 70, 80,000, 100,000 if you get enough overtime. But there's not any new jobs coming to Cohasset, Minnesota that pay $100,000. Trust me, there's not. So we have to be absolutely committed to including everybody in this transition. And I, I mentioned the, you know, the brown and black communities in, 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 in the cities and the migrant communities in, in rural Minnesota uh, that, you know, help produce our food and, you know, prepare our meat. Those communities are at the edge and they, they, they cannot have life get harder. So we are very, very serious about affordability, about uh, uh, economic uh, opportunity about uh, wealth creation, about job creation, about growing businesses that can uh, support a family, uh, high-wage businesses that are family-supporting businesses. Uh, but why can't more of those businesses say, maybe there's going to be 100 new companies in Minnesota that just install heat pumps. Well, sure would be great if 20 of them were owned by people who are Latino or African-American or Hmong or Somali. We have to have an economy that everybody gets a chance to participate in. Everybody should be part of the uh, clean energy uh, revolution. You know, it, like maybe the phrase American dream is old fashioned, but this is another opportunity. This energy innovation, energy revolution, it's our manufacturing policy in America. I talked to you about $70 billion worth of new factories coming. It's our, our, our rural economic development policy you know the wind and solar and transmission is going to be rural opportunities not urban opportunities it's our uh, it's our it's our foreign policy and our trade policy you know we're shipping heat pumps to europe so europe can get off of russian oil you know we're going to manufacture heat pumps and sell them in europe so that europe can cut the ties economically with the russians on oil and gas so this is an economic opportunity that's as big as the Industrial Revolution, and we want to make sure that every community is part of it. That's We're making a new hire this week, a managing director for finance and equity. You know, we've always believed in economic development, but now we want to seat at the table in the economic development community. We want to make sure that these opportunities are inclusive. And I hope you'll ask me about our new executive director. Uh, who was just announced? I was just uh, going to ask two days ago. Speaking of new hires, and and really briefly, because we only have a couple of minutes left, but your uh, organization announced the hiring of a new executive director, Dr. Brenda Caselius. Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's that's right. Mm -hmm. Oh, so tell so, us about Dr. Caselius and what this means for fresh energy going forward. So, Dr. Brenda Caselius is known to many of your listeners because uh, she was the uh, commissioner of the Department of Education for eight years in Minnesota. Uh, she went on to be the uh, superintendent of the Boston School District. So, my joke is if she can uh, handle the Boston School District going through the pandemic with 13,000 employees and 55,000 children she's responsible for, I think she can handle fresh energy. Uh, she's committed to this, uh, uh, this big vision this big goal of an equitable transformation that includes all. She told me on the first day I met her that some mental health research she was doing related to uh, children and students is that over 40, I think 48% of students uh, suffer uh, anxiety, treatable anxiety, because they're related to climate change, specifically related to their worry about climate change. Young kids know the science and they're like, mom and dad, why, why aren't you paying attention to the the reality of what the world is that we're inheriting. So Dr. Caselius, and I call her Brenda, and people will call her Brenda 90% of the time, but Dr. Caselius is making a transition from the educational community to the uh, clean energy uh, advocacy and public policy. And it, it's an untraditional hire, but she has persuaded our board and our, our community and our allies that she is the transformational leader to take fresh energy to the next level of success. She's going to bring her uh, commitment to children, her commitment to public policy, her commitment to inclusion, and she's going to help take fresh energy to the next stage of the game. You know, we, ha we have a, almost a $7 million budget now and uh, 30, 35 or more employees and a dozen or 16 contractors where we pay, you know, half or more of their income. We, we are a growing nonprofit organization and we are incredibly fortunate
to have a leader like uh, Dr. Brenda Casares leading us into the future. Michael Noble, we have about one minute remaining and we'd like to give you the final word. What didn't we ask you that we should have asked you about clean and renewable energy and the associated public policy challenges and opportunities? The floor is yours. Well, you know, sometimes people say to me, uh, how do you stay so optimistic when the news is grim? And here's what I believe. I believe that for people who have as much privilege and opportunity as I do, that it's really, really not moral to be despairing about climate change. You know, people who know the science well, they get depressed. And I already mentioned that, you know, 48% of children have anxiety over it. I know the science really well, but I'm not depressed about it. I'm like determined and driven. I'm a climate warrior because I see that we can fix this. My longest standing employee is a woman named Jay Drake Hamilton at Fresh Energy. And she finishes every speech by saying that when their children are meeting, you know, in 2035 or 2040, the children, they say, mom and dad, you know, that generation, they did everything they could possibly do to address climate change. And it worked. (laughs) Nice. I have to tell you that you are an invigorating guest, and I'm going to warn you, I'm a twice-retired mathematician, and you seem to me like the kind of person that's going to find that retirement is just too boring, and I see you moving <laughs> on to new things. Um, this has been a very enlightening and enjoyable conversation. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, and we have to end. Michael Noble, Nathan, and I want to thank you for the conversation and for your insights this morning. And that will conclude this edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, each Friday morning from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. I'm Bruce Moreland. My co-host today has been Nathan Leaf. Don't forget to join us next week when we discuss the challenges of affordable housing. The objective for Public Policy This Week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities, staying away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. Thank you for joining us today for Public Policy This Week. We'll be here again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Have a fantastic Friday and a superb weekend. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.